I'm James Jolly and I'm thrilled to be sitting down and chatting with some of my musical heroes. Welcome to this episode of Music Makers, a series in which we get to meet some of the most talented musicians on the planet. Finland has produced an amazing host of musicians for a country of its size. And among its composers, Kaya Sariaho, a longtime resident of Paris, has attracted a huge international following for her scrupulously constructed and exquisitely crafted music. Her opera, L'Amour de Loin, first heard in the millennial year 2000, was a major milestone in a career that has gone from strength to strength. A real music maker, I'm looking forward to discovering what compels Kaya Sariaho to compose and how she found her unique musical voice. Thank you so much for joining us for this uh, conversation. Music Makers is the name of the series and you're very much a music maker. Um, I hope I'm not being too optimistic when I say, you know, as a, as a species, we're emerging from this extraordinary two years, something the world has never seen before. And if one can extract any positives from it, certainly in the English speaking world, there's been a kind of recalibration, you know, diversity and gender balance have become much more important. And I was thinking, you know, for you as a girl, decide, you know, when you discovered you had a kind of a need, a desire to make music, who would your sort of role models have been back, back then? Because they weren't. Interesting. Indeed, they were not. Later, I discovered that there would have been some, but nobody know about them. And I didn't know either living in Finland, not having internet and uh, reduced amount of accessibility to material. But in fact, yes, there were no woman models for me in music. But in literature, yes, more generally in artistic world. But mostly because I did read much, especially poetry, there were women who had uh, lived artist life and whom I admired a lot. I mean, did you, did you grow up in a musical family? I mean, was music around you as a, in your childhood? My music was, my, my family was not at all musical. It was very simple family when I was small. My parents came from very poor conditions. After the war, my father's family moved from Karelia, which became part of Russia. So they moved to Helsinki. And uh, my mother came from country house, uh, countryside, really, on the border. And um, it was a simple family. And the music I learned to know first from the radio, because we had this old-fashioned radio, you know, that you could play with. And I spent quite a lot of uh, sick days uh, at home, uh, so I was playing with the radio. And then later we had a smaller radio at the country house. So by listening a lot of radio, I, that's how I really learned to know music first. And I, I get the impression, I mean, certainly, you know, from your music and the way you've used, is that it's sound in any, in any sort of form is, is very, you're very sensitive to sound, you know, what's going on around you and, and what makes that sound and why is that sound like that? Yes, I think in my mind, uh, sound is uh, combined with the uh, impressions of colors and sometimes even smells. And uh, that might come also from my childhood, uh, spending so much time in nature, very much time in forests and uh, admiring the different acoustics in forests by the lakeside. All the natural sounds, of course, birds, by, I liked always very much. And uh, maybe also because I listened to, to the music at the country house where we had birds and uh, the na nature around us, then it seemed very natural that they can be part of the music. In a way, it's the first music. And were you also conscious of, of sort of acoustics back then? Because, you know, if you hear a sound in a wood and you hear a sound on a lake, it's a very different sound. You know, you're hearing overtones, you're hearing echoes, you're hearing, you know, sort of other elements of that sound. Yes, that impressed me a lot. In fact, uh, my favourite thing was to go to woods after the rain because the leaves were damp 
it was so resonant. The forest was resonant. And when the birds started singing again, it was really a wonderful event. And other thing that made me very aware of uh, acoustic was the different kinds of snows. Because when, the, when it's very cold and the snow is very, very, very dry, then it really dampens the air when you go out and it's, it's, the silence is like, like nowhere. So I think, yes, it has to do also with nature very much. Because silence can have so many qualities. I mean, you, you know, one associate, when one thinks of silence, one thinks there's nothing there, but actually there are, you know, it's like the color white. There are so many different colors of white. There are so many different shades of silence as well. Indeed, it, it's beautiful. It is beautiful, yeah. So. When you you, know, you you discovered a need to to make music, was was it was the need to make music? Did that sort of come before almost the language to make the music with? I mean, was it the sort of the desire to create something came before how you could actually express it? Well, uh, to make music, uh, it's not maybe a good expression for me because. Mm -hmm. uh, I did start play. I did. I played many instruments, but I never liked performing, and uh, it never became for me a physical need to play any of those instruments. But uh, to imagine music, I think I started imagining it as long as I remember, and uh, then later, well. I was a small child, but then later at some point uh, I realized only the thing about composition. Because I was all the time this music in my mind, but it, I had it, but um, it seemed so natural. So there was not yet uh, any need to communicate it. That came later, that I realized. Uh, what is composition. And I also realized that composition is work and it needs to be studied as much as uh, all the instruments, mm. that there is technique. First, I was very frustrated that why am I not able to do it, even if I had all these things in my mind? Well, that's because I, I didn't know how to do it. Is when, when, when you know, I listen to your music, there seem to me there are two instruments that you're particularly drawn to that, that feature a lot in you. One is the flute and the other is the cello. They seem to weave through your music and you know, maybe because you've, you've had wonderful performers on those both instruments. I mean, at first, am I right? I mean, are you, are you particularly drawn to those instruments or are they just part of the, the huge panoply as a composer you've got to work with? At the beginning of my professional work, those two instruments were very important and uh, for different reasons. Flute I like because it has a mouthpiece that allows you to very gradually go from whispering or airy sounds like wind to very pure music. And these kind of uh, transitions are important in my music. Cello, because it has very large tessitura and um, it's very good size for, uh, for making different kinds of, of uh, bow changes carefully again change in color. So, and then I had two wonderful musicians, Camilla uh, Hoitenga, the flutist, and Ansi Kartunen, who very naturally grew into my music and it was easy to collaborate. Because both, both those instruments, you're very conscious of the person playing it you know there's, there's a sort of real sense of humanity you know the you, you know it's a it's a human being playing this it's not a you know it's it's not in any kind sort of mechanical it's just you know you it's a very visceral sound I mean is that what you liked as well the, the you know the fact that somebody was playing it and their personality could come through your music well always I, I think very physically the act of playing when I write to some instrument and um, but really physically how they mm. their body works also for singing i think about lot how where the sound is in in uh, in the body and for me it's it is important it's somehow to really to help me to imagine exactly 
the music that is coming into my mind that, that I'm trying to put on paper. And of course it helps, especially if I write uh, a concerto or solo piece for a person that I know. Of course, something of that personality comes to the music and, uh, and that's fun or it's helpful or it, it, it's uh, challenging, but it gives one more dimension. And it must be interesting though, if you, when you've written a piece for one person and you hear somebody else play it, because it, does it give a sort of perspective that maybe you hadn't even imagined when you wrote the piece, somebody else's personality It acting. can, it can happen. It can happen when it's another good performance. Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. But yeah, it's beautiful. And that's really good feeling then also to mm. understand that even if I have been thinking of someone specific, I, I can see that the music uh, is now there and it can be shared with many different people. Well, I mean, what's your, what, what is your sort of relationship to a piece of music once you have written it, you've given it over to the performers, the performers have given her the first performance, and then it starts its own journey on its own, a bit like sending your, a child mm. out into the world. I mean, do you, do you retain a sort of interest in, in, as it were, your musical offspring? Well, interest, yes, but not any kind of obsessive uh, way of uh, wanting to control things or something like that. And even the interest, it depends on the moment. If I'm working on something uh, very demanding, then uh, it takes time before I, for example, listen the recordings of the performance. But of course I'm interested. It's, uh, it's fantastic if people uh, want to perform my music and uh, makes me really happy that they want to communicate it. Are you, a, are you a, a, a reviser at all? Do you tend to, you know, when you've written a work, is that it? Or do you, do you go back and say, actually, I'd like to change this and I'd like to change that? Or do you consider the work finished, truly finished? I revise very little, mm -hmm. very little. Yeah. Sometimes there are some obvious mistakes or sometimes, well, in fact, always some problems with dynamics, especially in, in bigger works. But... Uh, to musically, to say that, oh no, that was musically completely wrong, that cannot come to my mind. No, it, uh, it, it's somehow that I, I dive uh, to the project. I, I realize it, it it's, it's in my mind, it's getting more and more heavy. I need to realize and complete it. And when it's there, when we had then finally the first performance, I say finally, because this COVID time was really special for that. We had to wait a long time. So I was going to say, it must, it must be unusual in your career where you've got works, as it were, sort of backed up that you haven't yet heard or hadn't yet heard, and you were presumably still composing. You know, there, was a, there must have been this weird period, which is unusual for a composer. Very unusual and in fact, very heavy in that sense that uh, I cannot let go before Mm. We have had the premiere and heard and assured uh, all these dynamic things and whatever. And so I had in my mind uh, my latest opera, big opera, big orchestra piece. In fact, I had five pieces that were postponed. And uh, my mind was so heavy with that music that uh, I, I didn't compose for a while. So... I didn't realize that it's so important. You almost, you have to kind of give birth and then you can move on. Kind of, kind of, yeah. 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 I mean, you've got a number, I mean, uh, quite a lot of composers have done it, but quite a lot of works have, have grown out of other works. I mean, is that something that you suddenly, I mean, what's the sort of impetus to, as it were, you know, revisit a work, but an element of that work? Oh, it's, uh, it has to do with the material. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes there is material that I really want to take into other context or that it had, uh, I was not able in the first uh, piece to develop enough 
or not even develop, uh, or just sometimes take uh, quite a lot of the same material, but put it into another light. So it's my material. If I want to give a new view on it, then, then I do it. But it doesn't happen also always. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, uh, okay, it's done. There is nothing to be added. Because, I mean, one of my favourite works of yours is, is the piece for string quartet and, and electronics, Nafia. Mm. And that, that spawned a, a sort of offspring, which was, yeah. which was, I mean, you know, for people who like the original, this was a sort of extra treat. Wow, you know, there's more to come. That was interesting in that sense that the string quartet was wars with electronics. And then the string orchestra piece, I wanted to reinterpret the electronic effects without electronics. So that was uh, all the what we hear. So that was an uh, interesting challenge. And uh, more generally, I, I like very much to give myself challenges. I would not like to repeat myself. Um, let's talk a bit about electronics, because you know, they have formed a, a part of your, your career. And, and to an extent, that's why you live in Paris, because it, you were sort of in pursuit of a sound, perhaps. I mean, wh where did your interest in sort of enhancing the, you know, the acoustic sound with electronic sound come from? And where did the, where did the germs start from? Well, in fact, that started uh, already when I was a child. My father had uh, this um, tape recorder. And um, I liked sometimes to sing into it, mic very close or further. I liked very much my um, voice when I had sang uh, some, you know, children's songs, the mic very close. And I still don't understand why my father had that tape recorder, because I don't remember that he ever used it. But anyway, so it, uh, the awareness of mic sound came already then. And then, of course, as a teenager, I loved uh, all kinds of music, but also Jimi Hendrix and uh, liked to hear Billie Holiday and uh, using the mic as the jazz singers do. And um, then when I went to study to Sibelius Academy, there was a studio, electronic music studio. And then Finnish Radio had electronic music studio. So already in my first pieces, I went to work there. So it seemed very natural. And then there were also very concrete reasons. For example, the first concerts we gave as a student in Sibelius Academy, they were given in an art exhibition hall. And the uh, acoustic was very horrible. So it also brought me to, me to the studio to see how, how could I create my own acoustics. And easily, yes, of course, by uh, amplifying. And that brought me to use the reverberations and so on. Then I continued studies in Freiburg, where there was a good studio. And then um, in 82, I was accepted to do a, a course at IRCAM, and that then brought me closer to all the then very new digital technology. Because, I mean, IRCAM is a sort of legendary place, you know, I mean, it's Pierre Boulez's kind of it was sort of his empire. I mean, your music, I mean, w was Boulez, I mean, mu I, I get the feeling that Boulez wasn't particularly influential on you as a, as a composer, but more perhaps in the way he, he explored electronics. I don't know, is that? He was not one of the important persons for me yeah. uh, musically. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, not having um, gender sort of, you know, roles to, to follow when you were smaller. I mean, when you come to EarCam, I mean, were women, women composers or women technicians or programmers, I mean, were they still relatively rare back then? Yes, they were rare. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it's true. That it was rare. I mean, all my study times, uh, it was quite rare still. Except in Freiburg, we were several. Uh, one had come from Canada, one American, one uh, good friend came from Hong Kong. So they were, that was the first time I really met uh, uh, young women who were 
also composers. And then, of course, at Darmstadt, we, in the courses, there were, it was more international. But it was strangely rare in Finland or other Nordic countries at that time. Mm-hmm. And in Irkam, yeah. Well, I'm not a techno freak. And I mean, I'm was that complicated, you know? I mean, because it, it's like a, a completely new discipline. I mean, out of, you know, in a completely new area, you know, playing around with electronics and computers and... Of course, it was super complicated, but uh, there were um, some interesting programs which were kind of new kind. Uh, one was called the program Shang. When you started working on that program, there were already all uh, parameters of, of a voice. And then, um, then you could change these parameters. It was more directly to do with, uh, with the sound again than starting really programming for, for you know, uh, like the earlier programs where you started from scratch and you needed to be able really to co- program. I was, uh, I, I'm not uh, at all good programmer, but I had a chance to have uh, good people around me. And uh, to start with Jean-Baptiste, my husband now, whom I learned to know at Irka. But uh, as such, anyway, I'm not interested in technology. I can, I'm interested what we can do with it. And uh, that was a fantastic place for me then, because I was always so interested in sound. And there was a psychoacoustics, there was a very famous, now very famous psychoacoustician, uh, Stephen McAdams who is uh, now in, in Montreal. They were acoustic department. So all one could learn about sound that I wanted to understand more how sound is behaving. And for example, why at that time all the digital music sounded so dead uh, when you made them with these first programs. It was because it was simple and because it didn't have that constant life that any live sound has. Meaning that if you even try to, the violin is trying for 15 years to learn to have the bow straight and make the very stable vibrato. It's never, there are always micro changes. And that's why we realized right away that this sound is a live sound, and that affected much my also my orchestration. Because one, one of the things that, you know, when you start exploring electronic, you know, sounds, you're analyzing sounds, you are actually giving sound a visual element. You can actually see the shape of the sound. You can see, gosh, I didn't know it could do that, or why is it doing that? I mean, that must, because you, you said early on, you know, you were, your, your, the connection between visual and audio mm. and even smell. I mean, did actually being able to see sound, that must have been quite exciting. And, and, and it gives you an extra sort of perspective on, on why does that sound sound like that? Because I can see it. Of course, but you know what? That time uh, we couldn't see. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that primitive. <laughs> <laughs> the technology has changed completely. No, yeah. we the, that uh, you cannot even imagine what uh, happened that time. It was uh, laptops didn't exist. Nothing of that exists. We all were working with a computer which was uh, as big as this Curtain wall, wall, wall yeah. there, and uh, that's why, for example, we went there often with Jean-Baptiste to work uh, night time because it was time-sharing system. And uh, you kid- couldn't calculate one uh, sound of seven seconds. It took a really long time. And if you wanted to, when you were creating sounds, you wanted to do something more substantial. You, you started the calculation, you went to have uh, dinner, and you came back to see if the calculation was broken or not. You went to sleep, you came back in the morning and you saw that the calculation was broken. So nothing came out. So uh, it was it, a slow process. It was not uh, <laughs> real time. And of course now you just have a laptop and it's yeah, done in yeah. you know, a millisecond. Yes, yeah. So that was very different. When did you start sort of exploring adding electronic music to, you know, for sake of argument, the acoustic? element of music? Uh, Well, that happened, uh, well, in the beginning, Mm. 
because I, um, I had an early piece for soprano, electronics and uh, light. For the electronics, I used material from glass. I recorded glass and uh, then I treated it with these old-fashioned uh, tape recorders. And uh, so that, that was one of my first pieces. But then came a period that I, I really wanted to really create instrumental music and find my language. And then uh, I think the next time that I started adding material, that was then uh, in Paris, starting from the beginning of the 80s. Because mm. I, I mean, you know, t to return to Nafia, which is is a work that I'm kind of I wouldn't say obsessed with, but it, it's a work that fascinates me because, you know, th the string quartet is is just an amazing thing. You know, it's it's been around since I don't know, you know, sort of the middle of the 18th century, and it's still. It, it still works for composers mm. today. And Nafia sort of takes the string quartet, but somehow without losing the string quartetness of, of the sound, it sort of enhances it. I mean, what, 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 what impelled you to sort of, as it were, expand the, the capability of the string quartet? Well, first of all, uh, the idea of writing a string quartet scared me a lot because there are so many. Because of the tradition. Yes, yes. But then uh, the commission came from Kronos Quartet and they would be ready for anything I wanted to do. Uh, then I thought that, well, writing for string quartet, but then using the quartet sounds to, 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 to change them, uh, I thought that would be a way to open opened the tradition and then there happened to be that time there was a new kind of one of the first smaller digital mixers because the one thing is that when you make live electronics at that time you couldn't easily do many things at the same time uh, and then came this digital mixer um, and um, so I could in beforehand I could program different effects for different instruments and I knew that it would be possible to mix it in, in the concert. So here, for example, the technology gave me this idea of doing it this way because before also using live electronics in a concert with uh, several instruments was very complicated because you needed to mix things uh, to, by hand and uh, and uh, then you needed different people to do it. And uh, so all that has changed so enorm enormously. Did you used to actually physically take part in the mixing yourself in the early, early days? Oh, I had to do it. Yeah. Nobody could do it except for me. And uh, I still do sometimes, of mm. course. Because it, it makes you a sort of performer as part of it's the, the lineup. Yeah. But the nice thing is that you are not on stage. <laughs> <laughs> You are somewhere in the hall. Are you a sort of shy person when it comes to that sort of situation? Do you even like going up on stage at the end of a performance? No, I don't like it. Yes, I'm shy because I, I feel myself very clumsy about it. And uh, when my first opera was uh, created at the Salzburg Festival in 2000, and it was um, directed by Peter Sellars, and uh, at some point he told me that I cannot watch that anymore. That uh, as soon as you get on the stage, you want to run away. And now we make, uh, now we rehearse it. And uh, then uh, we rehearsed it. So I come to the stage. I know that people want to see me. I start looking slowly from left to right and being kind to people. I resist my panic, and uh, so this is how I do it still now, <laughs> after more than 20 years. Because there is that strange, I mean, it sort of disconnect. I remember talking to Esa Pekka Salonen, one of your regular contributors, and he said, 
it, it sort of it always amuses him that if he's invited to a festival as a conductor, when he gets on the plane, he turns left and sits in the expensive seats. When he's invited to a festival as a composer, he turns right and he's <laughs> put in the sort of cheap seats. And, and you do think, yes, who is the music maker in this case? It's the composer, surely. Well, it's a, it's a divided it uh, job. But the music doesn't exist without musicians. I appreciate very much always the musicians especially being myself, uh, you know, n not even dreaming about uh, playing publicly. So I, I find it extremely important and mm. I always would like to share m the success of my music with the musicians. Because mm. of course, you know, being a composer, as, as we said earlier, you're letting the piece go. It is then, mm. you as a way, you've given mm. it to the musicians. You, you, yes. In a way, your, your work is done. Yes. That's what I yeah. feel, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about some of the, the partnerships, because you've worked with some, some extraordinary people down the years. I mean, Esa Pekka Salonen is probably, you know, one of your oldest collaborators in that you kind of, you know, almost sort of grew up musically together and he's championed you. Yeah, yeah, we studied together, yeah. yes. I mean, what, what is it that he brings, just an understanding of your music? Or? Well, he understands it, so understands it, of course, because he knows it from the beginning and then, um, well, he's a great musician. He communicates so well with orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I'm always in good hands with, uh, with him because he has all the past and, uh, and he's composer himself. So Do you think that makes a difference when, you're, when, you're, when a composer is interpreting your music? Do they bring a different dimension to interpreting it and understanding perhaps? Yes, but uh, there are great uh, conductors who do understand my music. I think it depends quite a lot how they perceive the music and how well they can imagine the music when they read it and how well they can uh, adjust the different parameters. You know, if somebody is a maniac about the rhythmic uh, perfectness, then uh, it's not somebody for my music because I like it to be uh, breathe and be flexible. And I, uh, I see it as a really like a live living material because always the conditions are different. The halls are different, the orchestras are different. So I would like everybody to find their view on the music. And certainly it's not something uh, uh, putting strictly in place. Of course, everything needs to be in place, but there are much more important things than after that, that we need to find. Mm. Because I think people would be quite surprised to hear you say that. There's a sort of general belief that with new music, you know, the composer is very careful to notate exactly what he or she wants. But actually you saying, well, no, there's a bit of, you know, there's some give and take, there's extra musical things to, to uh, add No, to I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, uh, of course, it's important that my music is uh, interpreted as, sure. I, as I write it. But then after that, it needs to be really interpreted. It needs to, uh, needs to get life. It's, it, it's not enough to play the notes. And you are right. People think that uh, new music needs to be like that and strictly like that. And that, in fact, there is no feeling behind it. It's, it's just this cold technology of today. Well, it's not. At least not my music is not. And uh, how many different kinds of new musics there are, you know. And there are certainly composers who hold perfection, if that can be given by human beings. Do you, are you, are you, do you take an interest in your fellow composers' work? Or do, is it it's something you, you kind of keep on the periphery? I mean, do you, are you part of a sort of, you know, a world that you're interested in what Salonen's been writing or what Manus Lindbergh or Dussapin or, you know, any number of living composers? Of course I'm interested. Mm -hmm. But then it depends again <coughs> the moment I'm, when I'm working. If I'm working with something uh, large and important and deep, then I don't much listen to yeah. other people's music. But of course I'm interested uh, one should be, and I'm not uh, only interested in music, I'm interested in the world around us. 
that's how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. And what about what about the, the sort of the you know the canon, the traditional repertoire that gets done, you know, eighty percent of our concert life? I mean, does, does that still interest you? I mean, oh, there is a lot of music I love. Mm. I love so much, and there is a lot of music I still don't know enough. Even I've heard it all my life. Yes, I'm. I I really love music, mm. but uh, that. There also it's very interesting uh, how it is performed. You know, even all the classics that we know, it can be performed so wonderfully and it can be so boring. So that's also interesting. I get the I really get the sense sort of that the sort of the life of music is terribly important to you, that music has to live, it can't just sort of exist. It actually has to have a sort of beating heart somewhere in it. Because as you were saying, you know, you can go to a concert which may be immaculate mm. but it actually is is utterly dead you know there's no yeah. communication at all well the communication is so important for me mm. that's why uh, i'm mentioning the breathing and i mean we are all humans and we are living horrible times and and, and music uh, it's so important aspect of human cultures there has not been human culture without music until now, yeah. and um, and now when everything is so commercial, and everything is valued by money, so for example my kind of music, it's getting into peripheria, and uh, I'm afraid for my younger colleagues, and uh, you know all kind of species die, maybe my kind of music will die, and uh, that's why I think we. Oh, no, that's, that's not why, but uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm very aware that all music that uh, we create, that it, there is a possibility to communicate the things that we want to communicate. Music is a secret thing. It's, a, it's a hugely powerful, so much more powerful than words because uh, it touches us. It, it, I don't know how it works, but th there is music which goes so deeply that uh, I really don't understand how it works. Th that's one reason maybe that I compose, because I'm all, all the time trying to find a way to understand more. When you write a piece of music, are you, are you doing it to enrich sort of the human experience, or do you think writing a piece of music the beauty of a piece of music somehow makes the world a better place. I mean, what is, what is behind the need to write a piece of music? When I compose, I don't compose for other people. Mm -hmm. I, I compose because I, I want to find a way to express this music that I imagine. And um, yes, it's, it's a little bit different, difficult thing. It doesn't necessarily make the world a better place. But uh, music can help maybe people to find uh, different horizons in themselves. Maybe they can realize that it's really one of the important things in life, like uh, love is important, like uh, health is important, and uh, those things you cannot value with money. And maybe it can uh, give you new ideas to live your life as you really would like to, to do it, or then maybe not. And then maybe one person can uh, find something in it, that, and maybe music can change one person, and maybe it can spread. I mean, uh, important things, all uh, spiritual and, uh, you know, all arts, they have a healing power also, if we take uh, time to let it happen. So I don't put too much hope on it. <laughs> but every, every, little, every little work of art, being it just a tiny painting or an opera, almost provides a little lens that somebody, somebody may look through it yes. and change, change them. However, I, I think so. And. Uh, Think about the, the music uh, that has uh, survived for centuries. Music like uh, some of my favorites, like uh, Bach, of, of course. Every composer says Bach. But then 
Monteverdi, uh, how their music survived, how enormous power they have still on us, and how, for me, uh, that music, for example, is very healing in, in many situations. But that's only one function. I mean, in society, there are so many functions that music has, and the music is so flexible. So it's just a wonder. Because, I mean, you know, something like, I don't know, Monteverdi's coronation of Popea shows us that all these hundred years later, we as humans haven't changed at all. You know, the, our emotions, our drives, our impetuses, you know, our desires are exactly the same. And, but portrayed in such an unbelievable way. I mean, when you get to the duet at the end of the opera, you, you can't help but feel changed and just, you know, breathtaking, you know, breathtaking at, at the sort of the beauty mm. of the writing and, and the emotions behind it. It is absolutely extraordinary, I mean. That's the interesting thing about opera. You are drawn to it as a person, as, as yourself. And somehow, consciously or not, you leave these things with these people and it uh, gives you something back concerning your own life. That's very strange. That's uh, that, uh, what makes opera and concert music so different. Mm. So you are right. It can really change you. Because you, you, your first opera, L'Amour de Loin, which I mean, it, it always it sort of strikes me as interesting that works, the works that sort of land on the start of a century or the start, in this case, of a millennium. There's something, I don't know, there's something very charged about the years around the change of a century. If you go back through music history, mm. you know, there's always sort of extraordinary works come within two or three years of, of the millennium. Um, but L'Amour de Loin is, I mean, you know, it's your first opera and it's been one of your most successful creations. I mean, in many ways, I suppose, career changing. But that was a result of, a, of an extraordinary coming together of, of sort of three creative beings. I mean, you, Peter Sellers, Armin Malouf as, as the librettist, which I would have thought when you were making your first opera, to have two people like that to work with must have been enormously inspiring and helpful. Yeah, but they came much later. I mean, mm. yes, it was fantastic to work with them. But uh, I had been starting work on the opera much, much earlier. So it, all the storyline and everything, I had already appointment with another poet, French right. poet, for example. But yes, and uh, I would have never come to think about Amin as a librettist because he had never done that kind of work. And uh, that was Peter's idea. And Peter, I was so happy to have him finally for my opera, but he didn't want to do it first. He, he felt that he could uh, add nothing to that, but I admired his work uh, already then enormously. Because, I mean, one of the elements that opera has that you know, other forms of music is, is it, you kind of need dramatic shape, you know, the, the, the opera has to, you know, has to have its sort of peaks and troughs, it has to move towards certain points, it has to take you on an emotional journey, you know, it has to resolve or not. I mean, that's an, there's a huge undertaking, you know, to take on, you know. It is, yeah. And it worked amazingly. I mean, did, did, did Peter Sellers give you, help you on the sort of the dramaturgical journey? No, the, no, no, no. But we did discuss a lot uh, the libretto first with Amin. Um, he let me th read through different versions and uh, then he asked me to mark with plus and minus things that I liked or didn't like. And we did that very much together. But I mean, the form uh, was... I always uh, designed the form first. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had spent so much time already before we really, before I got the libretto, in fact, uh, because it took really too long time from Amin to do it because he had never lived with deadlines before. So uh, he didn't really understand then that uh, every week he took was away from me. But I knew that whatever my dramaturgy of my music would be, that Peter would find a way to make an opera of it. Because one of my important experiences was to see his Saint-François d'Assise uh, of Messiaen. Uh, 
and I had seen the first version, and it seemed to me like oratorio. And then there was suddenly this unbelievable opera on stage. That's why I, in the first hand, really wanted to have him. I knew I would be in good hands. So with uh, La Mort de Loin in, in 2000, I mean, it's, a, it's an opera that's taken on a, I mean, a real life of its own. I mean, it's been performed many, many places, but it also opened the door to opera for you. And after that, you've uh, created, I would have said five operas. Somebody may, some people may say four, but I like to see La Passion de Simone mm. more operatic than, than anything else. I mean, to take on operas like that, I mean, it must be much more time consuming. I mean, it, it must eat out an enormous amount of your year or two years. I mean, how, how much time do you sort of, if somebody says, I would like you to, I'd like you to write me an opera. In your mind, you think, well, that's two years of my life to, do, to devote to this task. It's much more. More. In my case, it's much more. When I had written La Loin, I was thinking that, okay, now I did my opera. I never thought that I would write more of them. I didn't see myself at all like opera composer. And I even had a feeling that uh, I like Wozzeck, but I never liked Lulu. So I had a feeling that uh, the first one is the best. So why, why to write the second one? But then uh, it's true that the working then with other artists is very, very interesting. And then if the collaboration is successful, then uh, the result is really carrying the music, is giving even much more. It becomes very strong work. But uh, I felt for a while that I will not go back to there because it was very tiring work. Uh, psychologically also concerning the characters and all that. But then it was this idea of collaboration that drew me back to try more things and then uh, have another kinds of ideas and uh, every time have different kinds of ideas. And I think uh, right now, because innocence is not very far yet, that um, that might have been my last opera, at least uh, the biggest one. Uh, here I, I tried uh, challenges that I had never done before. There are nine languages, there are 13 persons, there, um, there are very different kinds of ways of using the voice. So, and that all together, work on innocence, it, it was five, six years at least. I mean, what drew you to that as a theme? Because I mean, it's quite a shocking theme. It's sort of, it's an opera about a, I mean, a kind of terrorist event. What drew you to that particular subject matter? Because it's quite, it's quite a jump from stuff you'd done before. You know, it, a very, very visceral, in your face kind of theme. It was not that subject matter at all. Mm -hmm. It was the um, idea of uh, how a group of people live uh, one event always so differently. And uh, what kind of event it would be. I mean, my first idea, I was imagining a group of uh, tourists coming to see the Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. And there are these 30 persons, and then there are these group Japanese tourists, and, uh, and they are all in front of that painting, and then what goes on in their life, does, does this have some, they encounter all these people accidentally, does it have something to do with their life, what do they think about those 13 persons, do they know about their history and, uh, and all that. So that was my first idea. And then uh, when we started developing it, I felt I need to have a um, writer. I was thinking I would like to write, work with Finnish writer. And uh, I came to Sophie Oksanen, uh, whose books I like very much and who, who is very interested, very good dramaturgically. Um, then I also started to thinking that this would be a the moment to realize my dream about having all different languages in one work, in one opera, because uh, every language is uh, inviting a little bit different kind of music. And um, 
I realized that uh, with Sophie had never written librettos. And uh, I contacted Alexi Barrier, who is also my son, but with whom I, we have worked a lot together. He, he has, for my choir music, he has written four times uh, different texts and he knows my music. Poor boy, uh, since he's, uh, you know, <laughs> very early age. So, so we decided to work three of us together. And then Alexi was uh, like dramaturging the text with Sophie and then doing all the translations. Then three of us, we discussed what then could be, okay, I wanted to have many languages. I, was, I had this idea of group of people living something extraordinary and uh, the consequences. Well, then we, we did discussed many, many different things. And then um, we had three candidates in the end. And then with Alexi, we decided or gave Sophie to make the choice. And uh, by then already we had decided that we would have 13 persons in it. And, um, and so there were the two conditions to have a natural way to use all the languages. So we had already discussed the idea of international school and uh, this team was one of our candidates. And then Sophie chose that. And then um, we decided that, but this is not story about the killer. Mm -hmm. Because this is something that also discusses me always when, when this happens again and again. Now less, but uh, normally uh, it was this killer who came to the media and uh, some of them did it because of that, to mm. have this mm. fame. And um, so then it became very interesting. We made research and Sophie especially of different cases. It has happened in Finland also. And then that's why we decided that it would happen in Finland because it would be so easy to put it to United States. But uh, that really it can happen anywhere. And so it's about these people who lived it. It's about the parents and their children and their relations, about the mother who lost her child. And then I wanted to have it uh, only one uh, formal curve so that there would not be intermission. I, I really didn't want, so I, my challenge was then also this time to make it short enough so that it would be only max one hour, 45 minutes. So that's how it came. And, and really, we, the killer, we wanted to keep outside of the libretto and music. But that has been fantastic uh, collaboration with two of them. But uh, it was very, very tiring. Because already in, in opera, I need to put myself in the person's place. And there were two mothers uh, to start with who were really involved in, their children were involved in this, and then, uh, then everybody else. So there were 13 persons who were trying to recover in a trauma and some uh, maybe success, some not. So to living in those ideas, uh, it was actively then, the active composition time was a little bit more than three years. But um, before that, we, uh, we used a couple of years already. I want to talk about a work that I, I, and I, and I, I have no justification for, well, for suggesting this, but I, my feeling is that it's very close to your heart as, as, as a work, and that's La Passion de Simone. To me, it, it, it speaks with, there's a different dimension to it. It just feels very, a very personal work. Um, and this is the work that could be construed as an oratorio that though, as I said, mm. and I think you agree, it, it's probably slightly more, more operatic, but it, it sort of scooped up a, a relationship you've had with the, the writings of the philosopher Simone Weil since you were very, very young and probably before you even maybe understood the whole I extent of what she was writing about. 
I'm not sure I still understand, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're right. It's it's very important for me. There are so many important things uh, what I find important in human life and uh, human behavior that uh, it's very special work for me. And I don't uh, undersign uh, everything what she said or what she did. And uh, I'm quoting uh, her texts, I don't agree with her, but they are there because it shows how she was and how uh, one can also think. And uh, yes, that's really dear work for me. Because I mean, essentially her philosophy, if I understand it, boiled down to the sort of, you know, the real concentrated bit. There's a sort of compassion that forced her into action. Mm. That's, you know, if one had to sort of say, well, you know, what Simon Weil all about. I mean, she lived a, an extraordinarily, I mean, it was, a, it was a, I mean, amazing life, really. A, a sort of example of how to, how to live as a human being in the world we are today. I mean, that, just that deep, deep compassion for her, for her fellow she human tried. beings. She tried, yes, but it was per, partly this compassion that... Uh, made her die yeah. quite young. Well, I think she was a genius because she was uh, so intelligent and in her notebooks uh, there are philosophy, there is, uh, there are mathematical writing, everything is like mixed and I had a feeling when I was really young that I had something similar in me in that sense that I, I was uh, trying to find the truth through different means. And that's uh, why she had this obsession and she used all the m means she had uh, mentally, which were enormous. But then uh, she didn't only have this huge mental power, she had this compassion, which was uh, like over-measured. Then she was not very healthy, she was quite tiny and quite clumsy <laughs> person. And then, uh, but she wanted to like participate to Spanish war and uh, and she wanted to go to work to the factory and uh, really feel how these uh, people were working there every time she got really very sick uh, every time something quite horrible happened but uh, but she still has extraordinary clarity in her thinking and uh, I think there was a prevision that uh, people start to understand only now. So when I started working for La Passion de Simone, I thought, well, now I take this time and I read nothing else but her writings and maybe I finally really, really understand it. And then I composed a piece and I asked myself, did I really understand it? <laughs> did I really... But there are things that touch me very much. When you when you wrote the piece, did you have the performer in mind? Yes. Ultimately. Yeah, I I wrote the soprano part for Don Upshaw, and um, at at some point uh, she did sing it, but she couldn't sing the premiere. She was uh, not well um, that period. But yes, it's uh, very much her voice in my mind. Because there are, you know, you've written for, I mean, Carita Batila, who's mm. another another extraordinary performance. And we were, we were sort of talking before we, we started this interview about, it, I just find it amazing that when you, you, you encounter an artist who is not just a great artist, but is a sort of extraordinary human being at the same time. And Matila just seems to me one of those, one of those amazing people who's just such a, a sort of big human being in that, you know, she's got so much to offer, both as a person and as, a, as an artist. She's a fantastic person. Yeah. Something that I have um, realized when I think about all the people that I've been so fascinated uh, with and working for, they have all been also very intelligent persons and not completely egomaniac, you know, knowing, uh, understanding their own talent, but uh, also being quite self-critical, like I think all the big ones maybe need to be to, to mm. come there, but also have this big heart. And uh, that makes, gives them the power perform as they do. Mm. Could one see Adriana Mata, La Passion de Simon and Emily as a kind of very loose triptych 
about three extraordinary women, or is it just sort of happenstance that they kind of created a little trio? Well, maybe they could, but I see it a little bit differently. I see it through the subject matter, because Adriana Mater uh, was da done with, um, with uh, Amin, and I wanted to bring the subject of motherhood into it because I I realized that uh, it was interpreted very stereotypically always in uh, in opera and then Amin wanted to bring the subject of war he had been war reporter a long time but he had never it was very private thing for him he had never written book about it so I I see Adriana as an encounter of these two subjects. And then Emily and La, La Passion came just after Adriana Mater. And yes, it has very much to do with Simone Weil. And then Emily has very much to do with uh, Emily du Châtelet. So maybe those two are like one thing. And now uh, when I think about Adriana Mater and innocence, I feel that mm. those two maybe have something in common too. Yeah. What, um, what drew you to, I mean, Emily du Châtelet was a, an extraordinary sort of early 18th century, I mean, very, very intelligent woman. She, she I suppose her most famous thing was translating um, one of Newton's great treatises, mm. but she was, she was the lover of Voltaire. They worked together. She was, you know, sort of intelligentsia, um, short-lived as well. But just one of those amazing figures that the mm. more you read about her, you just think, wow, she was just so sort of ahead of her time in many respects. I mean, after mm. a while, you sort of, you know, you just think, how could you achieved all that at that time? You know, where she basically it's came true. to an agreement with her husband that she was going to sort of go off and do her own thing, yeah. you know, as an intellectual and, and move in completely different circles. It's, it's a very inspiring story. It is, really. But what made me then interested um, to use it in opera is especially her sad end of her life because she was doing the translation of Newton at the same time as she realized that she was uh, pregnant and she had children earlier already they were adults I think but uh, she was 42 and that age it was of course very dangerous, dangerous. And uh, so she really, really uh, had this uh, race to try to finish the translation because she felt that uh, that would uh, leave mark of herself to the history. Because uh, all that she had could uh, publish before that uh, was not on her name. And even all the scientific meetings where she went, she was wearing men's clothes because it was otherwise unheard of. So um, I think that even if they were not uh, any, together with Voltaire anymore, that uh, Voltaire had made a promise that this will be uh, published in her name. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at the same time, there was this pregnancy that advanced. So. It was so strange situation, all these facets of her life that were so concretely at that moment and present. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely opera. Let's finish by talking about a work that, um, it's, it's not a new work, it's, it, it's sort of pre-pandemic, I think. And this is Vista, the work that is, is going to come to, is in, in, in Paris. And mm. uh, it's already had a, it's already had a quite, a, quite a life of its own. I mean, Susanna Melki has been championing it very much. Mm. I mean, she seems to be one of your, sort of, one of your, your Finnish sort of um, champions of your music. I mean, she, I guess, a bit like Esa Pekka, has a sympathy for your music. Susanna is, uh, has been conducting much my music. She conducted the first uh, performance of uh, Le Premier of La Passion de Simon, and that's a while ago already. Mm. Mm. So right now she's in a splendor of her work, I think, because uh, she has the freedom and she has the power and uh, that seemed very well. The Vista was the the idea for Vista came from uh, her Finnish orchestra, Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra. So it was naturally then she who would conduct the premiere. But Vista, I realized quite recently that 
after every opera, I have written orchestra piece. And it must be kind of a wild feeling of freedom that I don't need to accompany uh, singers uh, or other soloists and that I can just uh, uh, write all I imagine for the orchestra. And it was the case here also. Because it's a wonderfully virtuoso, I mean, it's, it, to say it's a showpiece is probably not quite right, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful celebration of what the orchestra can do as a piece. Yeah, well, it comes from that joy that uh, I could just concentrate on orchestra, big orchestra, yes. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm sure Parisian audiences are, are looking forward to it uh, for the performance, first performance here in France. But Kaya, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom and experience with us. It's been, it's been really enjoyable. For me as well. Thank, thank you, you very much. We hope you've enjoyed getting to know Kaya Sariaho. Before we leave you, let's play it by ear for a moment. We've prepared a survey on sounds and noises for all our artists to answer off the cuff. Here are Kaya's responses. Do you use other objects to make music apart from sort of traditional instruments? Well, especially in percussion music, any object that you can hit or Rub can be an instrument. Are you more comfortable surrounded by noise or silence? Absolutely silence. I'm <laughs> very uncomfortable with noise. If you could choose the sound of your doorbell, what would it be? Well, some kind of nice, gentle bell sound, maybe. What is the sound you wake up to? I just wake up. If your life was a movie, what would your theme song be? It could be love, love, love. What to you is the most relaxing sound? Well, nature has many relaxing sounds. And, and what's the most irritating? Well, of course, insistent alarm or these cars alarms that start on the street. What sound reminds you most of home? There's no sound that reminds me of home. What's the first sound you remember hearing? Must be nature, must be forest and that's at least the first I remember, the birds, different birds. What sound makes you think immediately of a, of a happy memory or a happy place? Different musics of course, but I cannot name one. And what for you is the most, most musical sound not made by an instrument? Birds. Lovely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Music Makers, produced by Medici TV, with the generous support of Madame Aline Foriel d'Estuzet. Log on to Medici TV for exclusive video versions of the podcast, early access to new episodes and on-demand videos of all our special guests. <laughs>